And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the intersection where faith meets reason. And I'm Doug Keck, your gatekeeper on this program. Your questions are important to us. They drive the show. Email them to us at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, magiscenter.com, thecrediblecatholic.com, and purposefuluniverse.com, especially for the people who are just getting into the topics. Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our wonderful EW10 on-demand page and on our YouTube channel. You'll find all our other live shows there as well. See them on the screen. For Lent, we recently added the Man of the Shroud. That's in honor of Father Spitzer, who loves to talk about the Shroud. So you got to make sure you check that out. Our show topic, answering your questions. Still catching up on those questions you've been sending in over the last month or so. And the book of the month, speaking of the month, is for April, was answering the questions of Jesus by our great friend, long lost, unfortunately, Father Andrew Apostoli. Again, I highly recommend this book, highly readable, great for the average person out there who wants to understand what our Lord was talking about. And the other person who can help us is Father Spitzer, who kick us off with a blessing, uh, or a prayer, I should say. Start with a prayer. I'm already moving the show to the end here. That was really quick. Oh, no, that's, <laughs> that's right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, once again, we give you thanks for the blessings you give us, especially in this ministry. We ask you now to send your Holy Spirit down upon us to inspire, guide, and protect us so that everything we do will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Please, too, Lord, bring peace to our world and uh, help all those who are uh, seriously afflicted by war right now. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary's seat of wisdom, pray, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Very good. And before we get to, to the rest of our questions, uh, here's one uh, story. It kind of fits into some of the other things we've talked about since you like statistics mm -hmm. and surveys. Uh, this one, uh, recently, fewer Americans are going to church on a regular basis, and most think the United States is headed in the wrong direction. A poll out today, this was uh, last week, from the Marist, which is Catholic, uh, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. the Deseret News, which is Mormon, I believe, um, mm -hmm. uh, came out with this, and they, they point out that an underwhelming 30% of U.S. adults claim they attend religious services weekly, and most of those who do are elder adults. They talk about Americans 60 years or older are 43 percent more likely to attend worship weekly. The number drops mm -hmm. all the way down to 21 percent in the age 18 to 29 category, which of course you've been talking about. But this I thought was interesting. It says research indicates the largest contributor to young people's decline in religious commitment is their attendance at secular government-run educational institutions. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, well, um, I mean, that's a correlation mm -hmm. um, that uh, may be established as a cause mm -hmm. uh, for sure, but I uh, would uh, say that that is not an, a surprising correlation mm -hmm. uh, because I think there is a lot of propaganda 
um, that is given in um, secular um, educational institutions. I think there is a deliberate undermining of God. I think there is definitely an overplay um, of, of the materialistic interpretation of the human person. Um, you know, and they're saying, of course, that's the only one that science can have, but that's, that's not true. I mean, mm -hmm. science, uh, you know, has had, as I said, devotees that are uh, definitely believe in a soul for, um, you know, <laughs> centuries mm -hmm. upon centuries. And, and as I've said many, many times over, you know, 60% of, 66% of young scientists um, claim uh, to be theists. Uh, they are obviously scientific people who obviously believe in a soul uh, of some sort or some way of communicating with this transcendent God. So um, uh, it's very interesting, but nevertheless, uh, these secular institutions definitely are out there really not just moving the agnostic atheist uh, unbelief agenda, they're moving the uh, materialistic uh, uh, metaphysical materialism agenda, no soul, mm -hmm. no transcendence. They're also moving, um, you know, despite all the problems it's creating within the culture, Definitely moving a view of happiness that I would call level two, that is to say, ego comparative happiness, who's achieving more, who's achieving less, who's got more power, less power, more influence, affluence, less influence and affluence, more popular, less popular, et cetera. So all of these things um, are being moved, I think, in a secular environment, secular educational environment. And there is a lot of propaganda that's being given both consciously and unconsciously by teachers uh, that basically foreclose the religious option as one that is, um, you know, uh, let's just say uh, either naive mm -hmm. or doesn't appreciate science or um, is insensitive to uh, people, uh, you know, who are transgender or something of that nature or um, a variety of other kinds of things. So there's all kinds of uh, little quips, little um, barbs that go out all the time. Don't think, of course, that students don't pick them up. Of course they mm -hmm. pick them up. They, of course, want to be in the know. Of course they want to please their teachers. Of course they think their teachers are intelligent, well-informed. On many occasions, of course, uh, the least informed uh, uh, people from a scientific point of view, <laughs> certainly from a social survey point of view, certainly from a history of morality and, and a sense of conscience point of view, and certainly from a philosophical point of view, are right there there in our good secular um, uh, educational establishments. They, have, they don't do reading in any of these areas. Of course, the science, science teachers uh, uh, read in the science area, but um, most other teachers read very, very little in these areas. But they do pontificate it uh, about mm -hmm. it uh, considerably. So I, I would just have to say, you know, we'd have to look at that and just take a look at, wow. you know, the whole thing. There are far more errors of omission than commission, and little subtle insults do more to undermine and damage credibility of religion um, than um, sometimes overt insults, uh, which could, of course, cause people to think, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. But it's the little barbs, the little insults that are continuous, like Chinese water torture. Uh, that really does hurt our kids. I, I think it's, it's very true. It goes on to say, or it's interesting, that 91% of U.S. adults claim they are moral simply because they, quote-unquote, follow the golden rule. Well, I would suspect that's there, too. Uh, but I think there's another really big cause uh, that I've talked about before in previous shows called social norming. Mm -hmm. um, everybody wants to be in the mainstream. 
And uh, so that means that the culture has tremendous influence to move people up or to move people down uh, the moral scale. So what, you know, they, people read the newspaper, they look at the television, they form an opinion on where the mainstream, the cultural mainstream is, the social mainstream is uh, morally, right? So if they think, okay, the, the norm is that most people have one drink per night, they'll norm to that. Mm. Uh, because they don't want to be too high, you know, where they kind of like, ooh, I'm, Literally. I'm a guy who right. yes, drinks literally, too, yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally uh, drinks too much, uh, smokes too much <laughs> marijuana, et cetera. Right. So of course the uh, idea, or I don't, you know, if I'm too low, you know, maybe people look at me a, a prude. Mm -hmm. I want to be in that mainstream, and so social norming is very, very powerful. Now that gives the press an enormous amount of power mm -hmm. because the press is constantly presenting where the social uh, mainstream, the cultural mainstream is on moral issues. And so a, a little poll like what the Marister are doing right now mm -hmm. can really bring people back, uh, you know, um, either to some sort of uh, reality because a lot of times the, 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 the perception of where the mainstream is is very different from where the actual mainstream is uh, when you do the polling. But Absolutely. let's face it, I mean, you can, the more you, uh, you know, if you keep, you know, upping the ante and saying, you know, that, oh, no, people aren't moral on this issue or people don't hold to this anymore, people then, you know, norm themselves down mm -hmm. to where they think the new standard is. Right. And so you can move the entire culture uh, downward and you can keep the momentum going. It's the power of social media, the power of mass media. The church in the past has been the only thing that has really gone against uh, the, the, uh, the, so the power of social norming, mm -hmm. particularly in the hands of mass media. And so, um, so we, you know, the church really has to rise to the occasion. If we're going to preserve a morality that will preserve the integrity of conscience, the integrity of um, family, the integrity of sexuality, the integrity of life, uh, the culture of life, if we're going to do that, it's going to be our churches that have to go uh, against the new cultural alliance. Yeah, defining deviancy down is what they used to say, yeah. right? That we just keep Yeah, going. that's right. Now, yeah. they also, a final thing here I thought was a, a quote that's a statement. Longstanding philosophical arguments and social science observations show that as Christianity decreases, so does political freedom, which you talked about last week. Yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, exactly what I was saying last week. Right. Uh, what's so interesting is, you know, the propaganda move um, is to tell you that if you detach from religion, you will be free. You'll be freer to, uh, you know, indulge in sexual acts. You'll be freer uh, to indulge in, you know, maybe get an abortion, uh, you know, freedom, right, quote, unquote. Mm. Uh, but uh, remember, it's always moving toward the culture of narcissism, the culture of unbelief, and the culture of death. That's always where it's moving. And now what, what's happening is you, de you, um, uh, you know, disestablish yourself from, uh, let's say, from, um, from a religion, and what's going to happen? 
you're going to fill it in somewhere. Everybody needs an absolute. Social norming alone won't do it. We need some sort of absolute anchor. We need an absolute purpose or meaning in life. We need an absolute. So if you can get, as Marx foresaw, get God out of the picture, then you can become the new absolute. Or your organization can become the new absolute. Or your corporation or the government can become the new absolute, right? So the, the idea is to disestablish the real metaphysical absolute, namely God, in order to put in a new social absolute, which could be any one of a number of um, you know, human institutions, uh, human morality, uh, or opinion formers, or a single individual um, uh, themselves. Uh, and so, you know, whenever you see a disestablishment uh, uh, though, uh, um, tendency, the first thing they're going to tell you is, you're going to be free. So you get away from God, you're going to be free. But no, you don't wind up being free. You wind up attaching yourself for the purpose of meaning in life, for the purpose of, uh, uh, you know, a community uh, to belong to, and for the purpose of uh, getting um, uh, an anchor, mm -hmm. a security, a foundation in your life. You're going to attach yourself to something, and that's going to become the new God, and then all of a sudden you're going to find you're not free. Right. Political freedoms actually decrease the more people become irreligious and detach themselves from traditional morality which is given by the religion. So you're basically moving right into slavery but you're doing it totally unknowingly. Mm -hmm. It's like being, you know, having the old knife, uh, you know, slowly <laughs> plunge into you, right. uh, you know, and uh, you don't even know that it's, it's it happening. Right, exactly. And uh, it sounds like uh, the, the lie that uh, was told in the garden, I mean, that same basic idea, yeah. right? You shall be like gods, right. <laughs> just like him. <laughs> Did, didn't work out so well. So yeah, next didn't up, work out uh, so well. <laughs> we've got to uh, get some, some more questions on the program here sure. uh, as we move ahead this week. Dear Father Spitzer, I tend to worry about a lot of things. I know I should just have faith in God, yet thoughts of finances, my health, the health of others all consume a lot of my time and even wake me up at night. When does excessive worry cross the line and become sinful, and how can I put more faith in God, Jay? Well, Jay, I don't think it becomes sinful per se. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, worrying is oftentimes out of our control uh, because, you know, things weigh on our mind. We have a, uh, you know, a, a real difficult time uh, you know, sort of suppressing those worries. And even if you do suppress them, it winds up coming out as depression and anger. So maybe you don't want to suppress them too much. What you really want to do is give them over to God. And, uh, you know, the, the, my kind of position is maybe the best way to do that is to first think about what really matters in life. Of course, all these finances matter. Of course, people's view matters. Of course, you want to provide security for your family. Of course, these things are important. No question about it. But the first and foremost thing is you want to get to heaven. You want your family to get to heaven. Let's call that the, the, the thing of most importance. And then in light of that, you just have to you know, start thinking, has God protected me in my past life? Well, if he has protected you in your past life, then you know this. He's going to stay with you. He's going to protect you. The Holy Spirit is going to be guiding you. If you're really trying and working on, on trying to, you know, remain 
uh, with God and trusting in God, working. You want to be a hard worker. You want to do all those kinds of things. I'm telling you right now, God's going to take care of you. Are there going to be times when it looks like, wait a minute, there's a failure? Or wait a minute, this thing happened to me, uh, which is a terrible, devastating blow. Or wait a minute, this person died who I didn't expect to die. Or wait a minute. Yes, of course, there's always going to be those times. But the one thing we got to keep remembering, you know, just inside of us mm -hmm. is we got to remember that when one door slams, another door is being opened by the Holy Spirit. We got to just attend to where, you know, the Spirit is leading. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time for us to get there, right, to, to get to that notion of, of uh, you know, uh, that, an, another, uh, you know, door that will open or seeing the other door that's open or going through the other door that's open. But the other door is being opened. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit is not leaving us bereft and will never leave us bereft. Uh, you know, crosses, you know, they happen. And sometimes, yes, crosses can result in death, but that's not the norm. That, that's not the norm. Uh, God really does plan for our salvation, the salvation of the others around us. And so the first thing we got to do is really know when, you know, God's providence is active in our lives. He's never going to let us down. He's always watching for us, out for us. What we got to do is, you know, when suffering hits, the first thing we got to do is say, thy loving will be done. We have to say something, you know, I've got these four spontaneous prayers. I'll just rattle them off for you. The first one, you know, uh, because you, you mentioned worrying, mm -hmm. I, I want to start with this one. Lord, push back the foreboding. Mm -hmm. That is a really good prayer. If you keep the foreboding, you know, that means that sense of darkness or impending doom or something's going to happen to me, you know, and so forth. Just say that prayer several times. Lord, push back the foreboding. Push back the foreboding. Use your hands. Just push it back. Push back the cause of this feeling of foreboding. Just push it back. And, you know, it really does work. I, I, I use this prayer in my own life when I get a sense that something is about to happen. A second thing is, you know, my wonderful prayer, I give up, you take care of it, right? You know, you just give it over to God, I give up, you take care of it. Or when something has happened already to you, you just say, Lord, make some good come out of this cross that I'm enduring, this suffering that I'm enduring. Make some good come out of it for me, for my family, for um, the kingdom of God. Make some good come out of, the, no, Lord, make optimal good come out of this cross. Optimal resurrection come out of this cross for me, for my family, for others, for the kingdom of God. So that's another one. But the most important one is thy loving will be done. All we got to do is remember that God's will is to optimize love, optimize goodness, and optimize salvation through you and for you through you and for you. So the idea then is God is always, right, if you're open to being an instrument of God, God will optimize his salvation, his goodness, and his love through you and for you. So if you start saying thy loving will be done, knowing that that's how he works, believe me, I've said that prayer many, many times in my life. Everything hasn't gone according to what I thought should have happened. Believe me, I, when I start going blind, I thought, what's this all about, mm -hmm. right? And I didn't like it. I mean, there's obviously, you know, Lord, is there a message in here? Should I not get ordained or whatever it was? But right. the point, though, is 
You've got to just get a hold of yourself. Thy loving will be done. Push back the foreboding. Make some good come out of this, right? Uh, for me, you know, uh, for others, for the church, etc. Just, you know, keep those prayers going, those four prayers. Mm -hmm. The second thing, you know, when, uh, when you're getting worried and, and so forth, the best thing to say is, okay, you know, just look at what's the worst that can happen here? Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes you go, I don't want to think about the worst that can happen. But you know, even if the worst happens, it can be manageable. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing that I always talk about is don't play games with yourself. Just say, hey, if I can manage even the worst stuff that could happen to me, and I can manage it with my family, and I can manage it with my friends, always think through who are the people that can help me if something goes wrong. How can those people help me if something goes wrong, right? So that I have a sense of who my allies might be or what a backup plan might be if something goes wrong. And I do, I, I kind of, I'm always looking at, well, if this goes wrong, there's always going, falling back to this position. Mm -hmm. Or I could depend on these people uh, to do these things and help me out here if this thing goes wrong over here. So I always have these little backup plans, but rationality should replace fear. Hmm. So the first thing is pray first. Those four prayers I just talked about. Second thing that's really important is that you have be rational. Rational about everything. Don't let your mind wander all over the place. This, that, and the other thing. Just say, look, I can manage even the worst things that can happen. I've got friends. I've got family. I've got my religion and God. I can manage this. I can do this. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I think of little backup plans that can happen. And then I just say, okay, Lord, mm -hmm. you take care of it. This is as far as I can go. There's some planning I can do. I know you're in charge. I know you're here. I have no doubt in my mind mm -hmm. that you're in charge. And so I just put myself in your hands and I'm moving. I'm just going to go forward as if nothing's going to blindside me uh, for the time being. And if something does blindside mm -hmm. you, so it happens. And of course, I really did get blindsided right. right into blindness. But of course, it's been very, very good in my life. It's really helped me in my life. It's really led to new directions and new ministries in my life. And I'm very grateful for it. I mean, I can't even imagine that I'd be sitting here right now mm -hmm. were it not for the fact that I had eyesight problems, uh, you know, and so forth. So mm -hmm. the main thing is just don't get too anxious when one door slams, uh, the Holy Spirit's opening up, by the way, several other doors. Right. It may not be one, it might be many. Absolutely. Let me ask you one little minor thing, just because sure. you used the phrase talking about people's mm -hmm. past life. And sometimes people hear past life or past lives and thinking we're talking about, you know, what happened oh. in somebody's life uh, as if they had prior <laughs> lives, which is not oh, a, yeah. at all what you were saying. <laughs> right. No, that's not at all what I was saying. As a matter of fact, I don't believe in any form of reincarnation, and I don't believe that there's any past lives. And I know people say, well, I can, you know, I have all this sense of this thing and that thing. I was back there with Pharaoh yeah. in the desert or something like that. And, and uh, believe me, uh, if that were uh, honestly uh, the case, uh, I think, first of all, um, uh, you, you would have a dual personality, and that's <laughs> not what you really have. I, I mean, the main thing is you, you, you 
are who you are. You have a single individual personality. You are not completely conflicted within yourself all the time. And most of the time, if you find that there are conflicts within yourself, uh, that's because uh, there is uh, some kind of a, uh, like a, a psychotic uh, a difficulty or right. something of that nature where you had a break. Right. Uh, it's not because you had a past life. Right, it's like they talk about people in who have mental illness. You know, it sometimes past lives. Everybody's a prince or a princess, or, or they're yeah, yeah, or, or yeah. they're pharaoh, like you said, or they're yeah. Napoleon. You know, yeah. nobody's yeah, exactly. uh, the, the right. nobody's a pauper. Right, exactly. It's amazing <laughs> how that works out. Uh, yeah. Next up, uh, similar. Dear Father Spitzer, I'm terrified at the thought of dying. My friend told me this indicates I have very weak faith. If I truly believed in Christ and everything the church teaches, then I should look forward to death because I would want to be in heaven with the Lord. Is my faith weaker than I thought? Lily. Well, Lily, here's the thought I have. I mean, first of all, um, I, I'm not sure what might be causing the terror mm -hmm. about dying. Uh, it could be because maybe, you know, um, uh, you know, the, your thought about the resurrection might not be very secure that, you know, that Christ did it or something like that. Um, I have a book called uh, The Soul's Upward Yearning, uh, which you could get from EWTM. But anyway, you could read chapter um, five of that book. Uh, which looks at, you know, terminal lucidity, near-death experiences, things like that, and some of the studies that uh, have been presented there, which are quite remarkable, mm. uh, to, to be frank. And that might be one way of, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, maybe confirming that. Or you might be thinking, oh, that, uh, you, know, you know, maybe God doesn't want to bring you into his heavenly kingdom, mm -hmm. but God most certainly wants uh, to bring you into his heavenly kingdom. And think about this fact, Lily. Here you are watching this program and asking a question on this program. I mean, your religion has to be absolutely central to your life. Right. Do you think that God does not see this, that God doesn't recognize it? And so uh, the idea then would be for uh, you to uh, uh, to pretty much um, maybe uh, um, take a uh, maybe a, a this I have this book called God So Loved the World, and maybe what you might want to do is just take a look at um, uh, the chapters on the unconditional love of God, and uh, that would be chapter uh, three. Uh, and then, if you want to, go ahead and read chapter four uh, on the resurrection of Jesus, and maybe the appendix, which is on the Shroud of Turin, right. a science in the Shroud of Turin. And maybe that uh, might be helpful yeah. to you as well. But um, actually, there's a lot of very good evidence that uh, you're going to do just fine and make it right into the kingdom of heaven. And we talk about faith, but uh, it's a human—it's human nature to be yeah. afraid of the unknown. And in some sure. way, it is. There's a part of it as much as you believe and understand. There's mm -hmm. still a part that's unknown, right? Oh yeah, and we do have a fear. The uh, the idea of being terrified, though. Right. right uh, I don't exactly, think you right. want to be terrified. I I just don't, Lily. You don't sound like the type that's heading in the wrong direction. Right. 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 And you certainly look like the type that knows, you know, the the real veracity and evidence behind Jesus's claim to be the resurrection and the life. Right. And we certainly don't get into this uh, idea that, you know, you know, if you don't have enough faith, that's why you get sick. If you don't have enough yeah. faith, you have to be careful about those kinds of yeah. uh, concerns. Yeah. One more question in the closing minutes of the first half. 
person writes to us, Dear Father Spitzer, I have a new job that requires I work long hours every other weekend. Sometimes I find it almost impossible to go to Mass. Am I committing mortal sin if I miss Mass because of my job? Do I need to quit my job? Carl. Well, Carl, first, don't quit your job. Uh, the first thing is, is see if you can find um, some alternatives, like if there's a Saturday night mass, sometimes if you look around your diocese, you can see that there's some um, masses there that are, uh, um, you know, uh, pretty light. Sometimes, you know, I know this might come as a real tough um, because you're working long hours, you don't want to get up early in the morning. Uh, to go to an early morning Sunday Mass. But, you know, if you look around your diocese, there are some churches, probably some nearby you, mm -hmm. uh, that really do have some, uh, or, you know, early Masses that you might be able to make on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. It is a big sacrifice, but even that sacrifice, you can offer it up to the Lord, and it's worth it. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say first try the regular options. Just look around the diocese and see if there are some masses uh, that you might be able to, to um, get in. If that just doesn't work, see if there isn't a weekday mass um, that you might be able to, uh, to, to substitute when you can't right. uh, absolutely do uh, a Sunday mass. Um, or a Saturday evening Mass. Uh, sometimes, you know, um, if you're working both Saturday and Sunday, um, you know, and you're working real long hours on those uh, weekends, it, I know it can be real hard, um, you know, to, to try and, uh, um, you know, extricate yourself uh, so that you can go to a, a Mass. It's when that happens, uh, you know, you might think about a Monday Mass right. or something of that nature. Uh, to replace it, and the, you know, obviously, you don't have full consent of the will, right. uh, you know, for not going on Sunday. I mean, the, you try to do as best you can with the schedules that are there, and you'd be surprised. I mean, mm -hmm. some of these masses, they do start at uh, five in the morning, six in the morning, and around the diocese, and sometimes right. you can get some really late ones. Like if there's a college in your neighborhood, mm -hmm. um, you know, like uh, we used to have Sunday masses. Uh, that, um, you know, at uh, Gonzaga, mm. for the kids, it started right. at 10 o'clock p.m. Right. And so if there's a college mass, uh, uh, just check out the Newman schedule. And That's you great might idea. be able to get a 10 p.m. mass uh, on Sunday or Saturday, too. Right, absolutely. We've got to take yeah. a break. Uh, a late apology for Gonzaga not winning the national championship. <laughs> Much yeah. more ahead with Father Spitzer and your questions right here in Father Spitzer's <laughs> Universe. for part two, Father Spitzer's Universe, answering your viewers' questions and uh, you, the viewer. And just want to remind everybody, don't forget, uh, next week we'll be back to Father's Book, so you don't have to write us and ask us what happened to that. We'll be on that. Father Spitzer, another question. I am divorced and share custody of my 14-year-old daughter with my ex-wife. She has taken our daughter to get birth control pills as a precautionary measure. I'm trying to live my Catholic faith to the best of my ability, but I have limited say in the matter. How can I best proceed? And more importantly, what do I say to my daughter, Kevin? 
Well, Kevin, you're caught between a rock and a hard place. I think um, by, you know, the, the first thing is if your daughter is going to Mass and, you know, is trying to practice her faith, then you can certainly tell her what the Catholic Church teaches about birth control. Don't use it as a lever, though, against uh, her mother who took her to get the birth control pills. Mm. In other words, um, you know, leave the mom out of it, uh, but tell the daughter the straight truth about what the church teaches about birth control and why the church teaches what she teaches. And that's all you can do, uh, really. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you don't want to put, if you try and put, you know, say something like, you know, why, you know, that mother, she's just not uh, uh, a very good person or a very good Catholic or, you know, you, you impugn her in some way. Probably what's going to happen is uh, uh, it could cause a reaction on the part of the daughter not to take your advice seriously. Mm -hmm. So rather than, you know, put it into a um, me versus mom, mm -hmm. I would just uh, simply say, here's what the church teaches, here's why the church teaches it. And, you know, you might, um, <laughs> gee, I could probably send you, I've got the, the polling data of, you know, people who use natural family planning versus those who don't. And I've got the statistics of what happens, you know, for people who have premarital partners, mm -hmm. uh, the number of premarital partners being correlated with the amount of divorce, dissatisfaction with marriage uh, after the fact and so forth. I can send you um, some of those statistics and some of the, you know, um, uh, you know, reasons for, for natural family planning and marriage mm -hmm. and why wait until marriage. I could send you that stuff, which is very, very compelling data. Um, you know, will it help somebody who's in the midst of mm -hmm. passion? Uh, maybe not, but if mm -hmm. she's not in a relationship where this is important uh, to her, then give her the data and she can see the truth of the Catholic Church's position, of Jesus's position, very, very quickly. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, the whole idea of multiplying premarital partners, the divorce rate within five years goes skyrocketing. If you have zero mar uh, premarital partners, your divorce rate within five years is 5%. If you have only one premarital partner, your divorce rate within five years is 17%. That's a tripling, that's a big jump. Then if you have two to nine premarital partners, your divorce rate zooms up to 30%. So now we're doubling mm -hmm. the one uh, partner and then if you have 10 or more uh, premarital partners, it's 35% or higher mm -hmm. divorce rate within five years. So there really is a direct correlation. And that's something to be noted. And that's exactly other, opposite of what culture would tell you yeah. the right thing to do was to, that if you had yeah. this experience and you did this, that would make it better for you ultimately when you were married. Yeah, and the right. other thing is the same thing the culture tells you. Hey, cohabitation is great for marriage. It's a, a pre-trial run. Mm -hmm. You get to experiment and see if you can live with one another. Rongo bongo once again, <laughs> because if you, this Rosler and Rosenfeld study is a very excellent study. And if you, um, uh, by the way, uh, you know, uh, really from a secular perspective, if you look at this um, study, you can see that the 
longer that a couple cohabitates, three things are happening. Number one, uh, the divorce rate goes up. And it's not just the divorce rate in five years, it's the overall divorce rate goes mm -hmm. up, um, you know, it, the longer you cohabitate. The second thing that's happening is that the satisfaction within the marriage uh, goes down. And the third thing that happens is that religion actually gets weaker um, with the longer cohabitation. Now you're going to say to yourself, well, well, why is religion so important? Mm -hmm. Religion still, according, this is seven major university studies, religion is the strongest force for bonding a marriage of anything except the intention to commit for a lifetime with children. Mm -hmm. If you have that commitment and then you combine it with a strong religious commitment of the couple, then the, you will be almost guaranteed very strong marital satisfaction, very strong common cause within the marriage, very low divorce rate, namely strong longevity of the marriage. You're almost guaranteed it. And what's interesting is that strong marriage will in turn affect the religious commitment. In other words, there's a reciprocal effect between marriage and religion. So strong religion leads to strong marriage, and a strong marriage with right with a strong religious commitment leads uh, to an even stronger religious commitment. So the idea then is, you say, well, how come that is? Uh, it seems counterintuitive that you you know you would cohabitate longer. You should be better prepared for marriage. Not so. Consider the following three things. First, you know, there's gender asymmetry, mm -hmm. and and why. Why do men go into cohabitation and want longer cohabitation periods? Because they want to kind of stall, um, uh, you know, impending marriage. They want to, uh, as it were, give it more of a chance. Mm -hmm. So they're looking in a way uh, to, uh, you know, forestall marriage, whereas when you've got uh, the woman, she really is going into the cohabitation relationship to promote the marriage. Now you can see that gender asymmetry, that means you've got two completely um, uh, opposite uh, reasons for entering into cohabitation. And this has got to mm -hmm. create stress and friction and fighting in the marriage. And it does. It does exactly that. The second thing that goes on, the longer you cohabitate, the, the more disrespect there is for the marital public commitment mm -hmm. itself, which I just said, that and religion are the two big strong forces that, of bonding toward mm -hmm. emotional intimacy, which holds the marriage together. So you can see that if you've got um, you you've been cohabitating a long time and you can see that the respect for marriage is going downwards right the respect for the public commitment is being poo-pooed and so forth and so on well now you've got the additional stress and the additional fighting from the gender asymmetry now you've got a, a disrespect for the marriage that is increasing by the day and what happens is you combine these two effects and what's called the sliding effect takes place. So in other words, the couple then to resolve the tension and the stress and the fighting from the gender asymmetry and uh, you know to to you know the 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 male will 
uh, uh, acquiesce to the marriage, then they slide into the marriage with very weak commitment, mm -hmm. and they're going to pull all of the stress and the fighting from the um, from the uh, cohabitation into the marriage. Does this happen frequently? So frequently that it causes, not all the time obviously, mm -hmm. but frequently enough that it causes a direct correlative effect, according to the Roosevelt Rosler study, uh, caused direct correlative effect between um, uh, marital dissatisfaction right. and longer cohabitation and, and divorces and longer cohabitation. But because of those, as you've talked before, because of uh, the cooperation of the social media out there, that this yeah. one's counterintuitive and counter to what they preach, yeah. you never hear these yeah. things. No, they don't hear those things. I mean, you almost have to, I mean, when the first Rosenfeld and Rosler study came out, you know, all these people say, oh, no, there's all these other effects. Hey, it's those, those people who are already predisposed, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, uh, to, um, uh, you know, to be in a good relationship and to have emotional intimacy. Those were the ones that and that went directly to marriage, and they just didn't mm -hmm. go to cohabitation. So your study is skewed from the get-go. But actually, Rosenfeld and Rosa did a second study to show that no, that wasn't the effect. They weren't. There wasn't a biased sample uh, going inward, the, the, going forward. Mm -hmm. The second thing that's really important is that religious component that I mentioned. You know, if it. For some reason, the longer a couple cohabitates, the weaker the religious commitment becomes. Probably because they think they're not following God's law. Right, right. Probably because right. they're in a exactly. And all these things are happening, weakening the religious commitment. Reli a weak religious commitment leads to a weak marriage, weak emotional intimacy. Part of the emotional intimacy is built on religious commitment, sharing the same commitment and having common cause toward salvation, toward children that you're trying to get into the kingdom of heaven. Hello, you know, obviously this is going to undermine the whole uh, uh, operation. So, I mean, uh, I do think that mm -hmm. at the end of the day, um, uh, you really have to look at the studies. You just can't, you know, look at what the uh, uh, you know, the culture right. is saying about these things. It's just it, the popular culture is so skewed right. uh, toward the secular and so skewed toward cohabitation. And the whole reason, as I point out again and again and again, they want to disestablish religion. Right. You, you, but you remember, there's always a new God out mm -hmm. there. Right. There's always the marketing establishment, the social establishment, the political establishment, the educational establishment, and above all, the mass media and social media will be your God. There you go. We'll get, tell you what to do. You'll be so happy. You'll be free <laughs> until we enslave you. Absolutely. Yeah. So here's another <laughs> softball for you here. Uh, dear, right. Father, dear Father Spitzer, my brother and his wife tried for years to conceive without success before wow. resorting to in vitro fertilization. After I converted to the Catholic yeah. Church, I learned why this is considered a sin. Am I committing a sin mm -hmm. if I do not explain this to my brother and his wife as it is a sensitive area for them? Is there a way I could lovingly approach the topic? This is Sandy. Well, Sandy, you know, you, you've got the right attitude. Lovingly is the big term there. But I do think it's, it, you should try to at least present. Um, I could send you a little um, article uh, that does explain this. It, um, you know, but I'm going to be honest here. It has 
There's a very good reason, and you probably know it. I did set it out in a kind of a plain way, but there's three stages uh, to in vitro fertilization. Mm -hmm. First of all, you have to fertilize a lot of eggs to begin with. Uh, you know, you're going to maybe implant uh, somewhere between five, six, seven of those uh, embryos, those real living human single zygote embryos. Uh, you're going to implant only that many, and you're going to have to throw out um, or keep on ice hmm. a lot of living embryos. These are human beings. You're just going to throw them in the trash can? I mean, uh, or hmm. what? I mean, it's just like these are, you know, they really are human, uh, human beings. They really have a complete genetic code for a unique human being. They really, there's a human zygote there that will give rise to every single solitary cell and the unity, be the unity of every single cell and that human being for the rest of his or her life. Mm. I, mean, uh, th I mean, there it is, you throw them up. But here is the second stage, right? So you're gonna have several of these embryos will attach. And then they're gonna look at which one is the healthiest one, the best one for survival, etc. Well, then what are you gonna do with the other four or five that are there? It's the needle with the potassium chloride right and so the, they're going to go in and basically kill those other maybe now two week three week four week old uh, embryos and so you know you this is i'm telling you there's a lot of death involved in in vitro fertilization it's not what people think mm -hmm. it is not an innocent procedure adoption is a much better thing now i know you want to be loving but also maybe just say, um, I'd ask them a question. Just say, w would you want to know the facts about this? Um, you know, and uh, maybe just ask if they, and they say, well, okay, you know, mm -hmm. we're interested in the facts. Just say, I I'm just going to give this to you. You know, it's your decision, but think about what you're doing here. This, this procedure is not as innocuous as you might think. Right. So, in any case, um, that's probably the way I'd handle it. If you if you kind of yell at them and you just say, right. "Oh, you know, you're killing all these kids and so forth and so on," I mean, it just they're going to throw up their right. arms Absolutely. and they're going to be defensive. So I would do it. Just ask them, "Hey, you interested in hearing the facts about this?" I'll bet anything, better than 60% chance they'll say, "Okay, you know okay. the facts. Why not?" and just say, here they are, and I could give you a little um, write-up I have. It's like a two-page write-up, right. or you can actually just see right. what goes on. And, um, and if and they don't, it them... may indicate that they kind of know there's a problem with it and they just don't want to be confronted with it, so yeah. you never know. That's right. Okay. That's right. Here's another question on a different topic. Dear Father Spitzer, we hear homilies about inclusiveness and everybody is welcome. Why do we never hear the distinction that although everyone is welcome, everything is not? Tom. Oh, well, that would be wrong to say it that way. Um, so um, uh, I, I, I'm not sure why, but a lot of my priest friends do talk about everybody being welcome, but everything not being welcome. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, so I guess it, it um, really does depend on 
uh, the priest. I, I know what you're saying. There are far more errors of omission than commission, right. as I constantly strum on my guitar here. <laughs> um, but um, uh, I, I would have to tell you um, that uh, maybe the best thing to do is maybe inform your family or your friends. I think the following two or three things were not uh, said, mm. um, you know, but uh, the, the main thing, you know, I think priests, for example, uh, you know, they don't want to say um, that uh, um, uh, homosexual people are welcome on the one hand and then, you know, sort of say, um, you know, but, uh, you know, gay lifestyle is a sin. And I think there's a discomfort level with doing that, mm. uh, say, in a homily or, you know, saying it in the church bulletin. However, you can do it without having to do that in a homily at the same time or in the church bulletin. Uh, you can, you know, put out some things that might say, okay, you know, um, you know, there is a strongly accelerative effect, maybe in an adult ed mm. class. Mm. You know, why does the church teach uh, that homosexuality is wrong. Well, there's besides Jesus and St. Paul, um, uh, you know, didn't like um, sexuality outside of marriage, you could also say, well, you know, um, you can see that there's an accelerative effect, mm. uh, you know, in terms of the number of um, sexual partners outside of marriage. So that at least in the Vandeveen study from 1998, which seems to be a pretty comprehensive one, I think they showed that one sexual partner um, uh, is was about 13 percent uh, in the homosexual population. Then between maybe um, uh, two to 10 was 13 percent, and then 11 to 20 was 13 percent, 20 to 50 was 13 percent. But then you here's the accelerative effect: 50 to 100 is 13 percent. And then 100 to 500 is 26 percent, and then over 500 to 1,000 is 13 percent, and then over 1,000 is 13 percent. So you can feel that almost accelerative move. So you start stepping over the line, like coming out, and you get into the lifestyle. What winds up happening is it almost has an ex uh, a momentum that you're mm -hmm. getting ushered into that increases the number of sexual partners. And, um, um, you know, so the median uh, number of sexual partners, I believe, is about, uh, that means that half the population is over that and half mm -hmm. the population is under the median. So as I think for uh, heterosexuals is about seven for men and four for women uh, for sexual partners. Mm -hmm. For um, homosexual men, it's 100, and I forget the lesbian one, but it's higher. Mm -hmm. And so the point, though, is you look at those statistics and you say, well, wait a minute here. Um, that's pretty high. Um, is there something in the lifestyle that is um, causing this to happen? Then there's two questions to, you know, you know, you, to explain. Is you, you have to say, well, what happens when you get to the higher numbers of sexual partners? Well, emotional intimacy per force is going to go down almost wow. to zero once you're over 20 sexual partners. You just can't s sustain emotional intimacy under those circumstances. And then the pressure against monogamy gets higher and higher too. And you can see those mm -hmm. correlations. But what's really, uh, th here is the thing. It's not just that this has a deleterious effect on relational health. 
it has a deleterious effect on spiritual health that literally the number of uh, atheists, uh, the people that self-identify as atheists in the population doubles. So is 41% according to the last Pew survey uh, among those who are living uh, homosexual lifestyle uh, compared to 22% in the general population. So mm -hmm. if you start looking, you can see religious practice going down. And then one other thing, there is a tripling of depression um, uh, in that population. Panic disorders go up by five times in that population compared to the general population. And then you see that substance abuse goes up 3.5 times. And then on top of that, major psychiatric disorders go up 2.5 times. But here's the clincher. Suicidal contemplation goes up by a factor of five times. So that means five times greater than the general population. Mm -hmm. And now suicidal contemplation is in 40% of the population as distinct from about 7.8% in the general population. That should mm -hmm. be uh, sobering to think about. And so you can just say, here are the stats, look at this lifestyle, uh, maybe that could be the reason that Jesus or St. Paul, right. or that could be the reason that we should uh, remain faithful to one partner in a committed marriage over the course of a lifetime. That's why we ought to take Jesus' um, um, right. admonition about marriage very seriously. So in, in the closing two minutes, let me just ask you, I think sometimes people <laughs> say, well, you know, you've got yeah. Jesus was eating with the sinners and hanging out with uh, yeah, you know, he the was. bad people. Yeah. And see, he, he welcomed everybody, but that's not yeah, where the did. story ends, right? Right, no, but Jesus always said to, like, to the woman caught in adultery, right? right? He definitely got her off the hook. Let any one of you here who's not committed sin throw the first stone. So, I mean, uh, they all go away, and then he says, woman, where have they all gone? You know, and she, well, they're not here, mm -hmm. you know, and he goes, uh, he says, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, well, and he goes, nor do I condemn you, comma, but go now and commit this sin no more. So, of course, he tells her straight, this is a sin. Right, exactly. And he's telling her, don't do the same one. You, okay, I'm not condemning you either, but you gotta turn your life around. You can't keep doing this. So, um, so that is a, right. It's almost like the sacrament of confession in the sense of, right. of having it be there, you know, with that such, same situation, right? Exactly, exactly. So you want to try your best. I mean, that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect overnight. Could that right. woman have fallen again? Yeah, she might have fallen again. But she has to really try to the best of her ability, what called right. firm purpose of amendment, not to commit that sin anymore. Very good. With that said, uh, if you'll give us your blessing out the door, that'd be great, yes. Father. Oh, very good. And bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all mercy move you in the core of your being and help you to know the truth of his teaching, the truth that he has brought to the world through his incarnation and through his passion and cross, the truth about morality, the truth that he as creator from the very beginning has given us so that we might go out to all the world and preach that truth along with the unconditional and unrestricted mercy of God unto the salvation of all. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Stay well. We shall see you next week, and we'll see all of you next week. And when our topic resumes dealing with uh, Father's book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives, and we'll be talking about that. And all those books are available, of course, through our EW10 Religious Catalog. And a wonderful book, uh, A Sacred Story by Father Bill Watson and Richie Roman. Check out that book as well. And we've also got some other things coming up. We've got a solemn mass of Palm Sunday from Rome Sunday, April 10th. Can you believe it or not? It's already Palm Sunday, 4 a.m. Eastern. And the solemn mass of Palm Sunday from the Basilica in Washington, of course, on April 10th at noon Eastern. And check out EW10.com for all the Holy Week events and specials. Check out all that information will give you specific times and days. And don't forget, you can always check us out on demand on EW10's On Demand page. I'm Doug Keck. We shall see you next time when we once more re-enter Father Spitzer's universe.